This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to Your Booked. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host, book inspector and disgraced reading monitor. I got fired in 1993 after hiding a copy of It's Not Fair by Belle Mooney for my own personal use. I have no regrets and Kitty is still my spiritual beacon. Firstly, my book, The Sisterhood, A Love Letter to the Women Who Shaped Me, is published by Headline on the 7th of March. And as a Your Booked listener, you can pre-order it from themargatebookshop.com and get 20% off site-wide when you use the code BOOKED at the checkout. Now on to this week's guest. We're talking to the author, critic and journalist Hannah Beckerman, whose new novel, If Only I Could Tell You, has dazzled and captivated readers, including Jojo Moyes, John Boyne and Marion Keyes, who cried. It's about a family being torn apart by secrets and finding connection after decades of tension and separation. As the eldest of six sisters, I thought the sibling relationship was painfully accurate and beautifully described. It made me weep too. Hannah is also a professional book addict. She's a critic for The Observer, The FT and The Sunday Express, as well as regularly contributing to Sarah Cox's BBC Radio 2 show. She's a frequent judge, panel host and festival guest and she spent time with Philip Roth and Jackie Collins. Hannah is also one of the greatest cheerleaders for books, reading and writers that I have ever met. Here's what we found on her shelves when we visited her in West London. We're here with Hannah in her study. Um, It's a really, really beautiful room. You've got a gorgeous desk. How many thousand words do you think that desk has seen? Well, in tweets alone, probably a couple (laughs) hundred thousand. So we're around, I know you've got a filing system here, so some of these books are books that you are reviewing. Really gorgeous fiction. So so where you are now, you are in the kind of books that have made the grade. So, I mean, you know this, Daisy, you get sent, what, 40-odd books a week? And so I have my shelf of books that I am likely to review, organised in date order like the obsessive that I am and then basically everything else in the house has sort of made the way we now have a one-in-one-out policy because they're just we are now out of shelf space so it's these are either books that I have read or that I am certain that in this is basically my retirement pile so they're books that either I've read or that I'm certain I will want to read at some point in the future when I'm no longer working. So can we talk about kind of you as a book reviewer and how long you've been reviewing and sort of how easy or difficult it is to separate reading for pleasure and reading for work and I suppose whether reading for work is pleasure there is no reading for pure pleasure anymore so I can't remember the last time I read a book that I wasn't working is that on sad, in some way or is that just the inevitability of being a sort of freelance writer and I find it quite novelist. depressing I'll be honest because 
You know, but I mean, not least because when you're on Twitter, on social media, there is noise about a certain book mm. that you really might want to read. And if you can't find the time to be part of that conversation, there is a kind of sense of sort of bookish FOMO yeah. that I get. Um, so there is that sadness. And also, I mean, I suppose there's also the other side, which is when you're getting commissioned to write reviews of books they're not always books that you would have necessarily chosen mm. to read yourself so I would say probably a third of the reading I do a year are books that I probably wouldn't have otherwise read well not, and you know there are books that I have been asked to read that I've heard nothing about that I have then absolutely loved so there's a book I'm looking at now called did you ever have a family it's over there it's the kind of the red one right on the corner oh, by I Bill Clegg which, I've not heard of this book. It's absolutely devastatingly beautiful. It's about a house fire and the fallout both in the community and within a family. And and I, as I said, I'd never heard of it. I got asked to review it and I, I became sort of slightly evangelical about it because it's just one of those books that I just found so moving. Um, and, oh, there's a, there's a writer, so she's got another one coming out in March called Eilet Gunda Goshen. She's an Israeli writer. And I interviewed her for The Observer. Again, never heard of her. Um, she's got a new one out called Liar. Um, in that, I mean, I don't know if that's because that's a proof from whether the cover will change much for the real. But, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. I always do. I love <laughs> that. It's a gorgeous, very millennial pink, upended sort of strawberry ice cream cake. Very millennial, but also very, um, very Farrah and Ball. Yeah. It's got that kind of muted glassiness to it. But if you went into a pub and you saw that on the wall, you'd know you were going to be OK. You'd know there'd be... Y- yes, um, or someone's house. You'd be like, they're going yes. to provide some good mm. nibbles before dinner. Posh olives. Yeah, exactly. Best kettle chips. But no, so she wrote a book called Waking Lions about um, immigration and Israel that was just so moving. And again, I just would never have found her if I hadn't been commissioned to interview her. So there is that side of things. So for every kind of book that I read that I might not have wanted to, there is the kind of undiscovered gem. How, what were you like as a young reader? Were you always someone who, who loved books and was sort of sneaking off with books or was there a particular book that absolutely sparked it for you? No we I was quite a bookish girl so we didn't have I, I had a friend when I was at school and she her parents both taught at the local private school and whenever I went to her house she was she had one of those houses that was just full of books so you walked up the stairs and like you know there were just piles of books and to me it was like heaven because we I grew up in a house where we didn't have lots of money and we didn't have lots of books. And my mum took us to the, to the library every Wednesday morning, which was market day. So you'd go and like get your market shopping. You'd go to the bakers and get your bread, and then you'd go to the library and get your six books. And so we, and so I did read, you know, six books a week from the library. And we were a kind of bookish family in that way, in that my mum was encouraging us to read a lot. But we didn't have a house that was full of books and I still remember with such a kind of visceral sense that sense of envy of going to my friend Charlotte's house where she had books everywhere and I always vowed that when I was growing up I would have a house that was full of books and if I had kids I wanted them to grow up in a house that was full of books and you've got your dream (laughs) three floors of books (laughs) <laughs> Although when the post comes with sort of a thousand jiffy bags every morning, you're like, oh, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> what were you getting out of the library? I was getting out um, lots of, I was getting out lots of Enie Blyton, whether it was kind of Secret Seven or Famous Five. You know, I loved St. Clair's and Mallory Towers. In fact, I've, I've found my old, they're next door in my daughter's bedroom, I found my old, now battered copies. Um, you know, when you really love books and you get them for your birthday mm. after you've read them 18 times from the library. favourite? Because I think people tend to either um, Mallory Towers or St Clair's. Don't, you know, you, sort of, you read them both, but you... I think at the time I preferred St Clair's 
but in retrospect, I think Mallory Towers are better books. Daryl's a much more interesting character than the twins. Much more interesting. Although I, 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 I was thinking about this this morning, and I was trying to remember who was the girl in St. Clair's who comes in, I think in the fourth or fifth year, and she's really, really angry, and she's quite kind of manly in her, like she's quite kind of strong. Where's and she's saying... Was it Or was it Bobby? I was trying to remember this morning. Wilhelmina? Anyway, and she, she's the one, there's a fire, and she goes and rescues someone from the fire, and then when she comes back, um, obviously they all like treat her as a heroine, mm. and then it transpires that I think her parents have got divorced or there's some kind of sort of family stuff at home. And I just remember that character so well, and I don't think I understood at the time why I sort of empathised with her or why I cared about her, but she was so sort of vulnerable. Um, and, you know, she stuck with me for, what, like nearly 40 years? which is incredible, I think. Funny, isn't it, how I think you instinctively reach for the books you need and you really hone in on the parts of books that you need and you know what's going to nourish you and you, you keep it close to you. But, but also, because it's, you know, if I think about me as a child, my worst thing in the world would have been being sent to boarding school. You know, I was a really homely girl, I was really close to my mum. If someone had said, you're actually going to go to boarding school, I would have just wept and wept and wept and probably run away from home oh. so I didn't have to go. And yet I, I asked l- my mum and dad if I could go after <laughs> reading Mallory Towers. And that, I mean, I, you know, I don't think they had the cash for it, but also like, what's wrong with us? Why do you want to leave? Well, but, that, but, that, but that's what I sort of don't really quite understand about sort of my fascination with the St. Clairs and the Mallory Towers. And there was another series called The Trebizon Books by Anne I Rigby. loved those which, books. I loved Rebecca and her tennis career and, and what I really exactly what I really liked about her as well was typically you've got a heroine or a main character who's like a scholarship girl made good so the non-boarding school girl can kind of you know relate yes, a bit because yeah, yeah. if you're reading the books you're probably sort of you think you're you know you're quite bright like oh I could get a scholarship if the school <laughs> existed but um Rebecca's experience was very different and she was sort of sent there you know through her dad's work and she maybe wasn't super academic or super anything because the tennis stuff happened quite yes. late I think if I was like oh she's a tennis pro but not for me <laughs> sex was sort of vaguely present in really? Trevor's do you I remember think, I think you might have found it I didn't well there was Ingrid the Swedish exchange student who got told off for going off with boys and like <laughs> sunbathing in town in a bikini and everyone was like oh Ingrid there's something up here and I think Rebecca had a boyfriend I don't remember that. Robbie. I remember I remember Claudine at in St Clair's being like the, the French circus girl yes. who was basically kind of like exotic but slightly kind of um, suspicious because she came from a circus and everyone looked down on her because she was basically kind of common circus girl. All the I mean all the class common stuff in those. Circus girl, you could run to the fees. <laughs> Did <laughs> she come in on a horse? I, there, there was a real. Ooh. I think the trope the. <laughs> undiscussed trope of boarding school girls Mm. fiction is someone always comes into a room on a horse (laughs) someone always burns the toast for the prefects in their first year and they're ragged (laughs) there's ragging i never quite understood what that was because do you remember did you read the naughtiest girl in the school where they're all sort of they have like a school council and it's supposed to be very very fair i mean like looking back i think that was enid Blyton showing her distaste for communism (laughs) Um, I always ask this because I'm really curious about it. Were there any books that you read as a child or as a teenager where you were acutely aware that perhaps you shouldn't be reading it? And perhaps... The contraband reading. Yeah, parents or teachers might be like, oh, what's that? Well, I, don't, I think not even might be. Um, <laughs> so when I was in the third year junior, so what would we have been then? About nine or so. 
um, someone got a hold of a copy of Forever by <gasps> Judy Bloom. Oh, it's funny because that is the one that comes up. Does quite it come a up lot. a lot? And basically, she she was called Nicola, and the deal was that you were allowed to keep it for one night only, and then you had to pass it on oh, to wow. the next person because there were like you know what fifteen or sixteen girls in the school to get through. So you basically had this book that you had to squirrel away from your mum, not read it obviously during daylight mm. hours, read it at night in the dark with your, like, your torch and then hand it back the next day. So every and day I'm... there'd be one girl in the class sort of back under <laughs> yeah. her eyes be like, I'm not going to bed, forever. Well, and also just like feeling a bit discombobulated by reading about stuff that wasn't really appropriate when you were nine. So I quite like the idea that there was a, that it was that organised and that it's, did people respect the system? It, was, was there a real sort of egalitarian? It was like a sisterhood. It was a, oh, <laughs> that's without really wanting lovely. to do a pun about your book. Um, but it was, it was Can't almost... Need all the <laughs> It was almost like that we were gonna, we were gonna. It was, I mean, obviously, we weren't really sharing a book. We were sharing kind of contraband stuff about sex that we knew we shouldn't be reading. Um, but it was there was a very much a sense of kind of, yeah, a, a sort of sisterhood about you know we're all gonna learn about Ralph. Because I think that so often, even you know when you are nine, because I think in some ways nine is it is young, but then you know there there's a wider world and there's plenty yes. of stuff you don't know. You sort of your knowledge isn't finite, and there's all sorts of weird adult stuff happening that's there to discover well and also I suppose because I mean it probably was slightly kind of intimidating you know there are these teenagers who are kind of embarking on sort of sexual Mm. exploration and you know having names for penises and you know that could I think if you were doing that on your own Mm. and you weren't able to then talk about it and all be slightly embarrassed and intimidated together it probably would have been a lot weirder Oh, good. So there was some sort of post-book discussion, like, what the hell was that? Because I remember reading <laughs> all sorts of... Virginia Andrews is another one that sort of that comes up a bit, and quite a lot of it just being like, I know that's a sort of mad, kinky thing, but I don't really know what it is. I just know it's in yes. that pile of yeah. knowledge that I don't quite have the wherewithal to process yet. I mean, actually, my favourite Judy Bloom is Deanie, the one where she has to wear the back brace and her mm. mum wants her to be the, to be a model and then she has to wear this back brace to cure her scoliosis for four years. And her mum still is saying, you know, four years' time, I want you to be a model. And she doesn't. She wants to kind of go and do orthopaedics. Um, and for me, that's there's something so much about kind of parental expectation and female empowerment and teenagers being uncomfortable in their own bodies that I just loved about that book. Do you have any favourite book parents or villainous book parents if you could be adopted by any parents in a book? I mean, I, I mean, my favourite book of all when I was a child was Ballet Shoes. And, oh, and when I think about it now, I think to have an Uncle Gum in my mm. life as a child would have just been heavenly. I don't think I quite understood that at the time. But when I think about that book now and the kind of fractured family and these kind of people who are not really related looking after those girls and having kind of mad Uncle Gum as, as, as absent as he was nonetheless that kind of eccentric I think I always want when I was a child I just wanted a kind of eccentric avuncular figure in my life mm. who would do slightly mad things almost like a sort of a slightly more real god who's <laughs> there and looking out for you so non-reviewing novels here no so these might so have these been are, re- these might have all been reviewed so a lot of these have been reviewed but I love them enough to keep them or they're are, books that I haven't these are yet books re- you want to kind of to keep and, yes. and have in your life so you know we have Elizabeth Strout who I adore um, and who has another book coming out this year, which I'm super, super excited about. I see. And so over here, the other side, got. Um, I spotted this. Um, oh, I did the last interview with Jackie Collins oh, before she wow. died. Wow, I didn't know that. That is so. This is was this her last book? That was her so last that, book. And then the somewhere, with it. this is called a... Thrill. 
and Actually, it's a no, celebration. No, no, oh, last book. I want to talk about Thrill because it's a celebration edition. The it says Jackie Collins Thrill in leopard print font, <laughs> and there's is that a panther on the front? Let me have a look. I'm just getting your another one down for you. What is that oh. one? So this is well, it's some kind of big cat, isn't yeah. it? That looks quite predatory. Big gold sexy cat. Um, and I and, said, oh, and the cover quote is Jilly Cooper, who you love, favourite of of the podcast, a true inspiration, a trailblazer for women's fiction. So the reason I keep these, that one and this, is because since she died, every edition now has my interview with her in the back. Oh, that's so cool. So um, are you in this one as well? I think that's the reason I kept that one. Let's have a look. Yes, there we go. There's the interview in, in that one as well. Because I hadn't read much Jackie oh, Collins wow. I've just opened up this. It's people like Miley Cyrus and Rihanna, and they're all doing their own thing, and they're seizing their lives, like all the models now are bisexual, because it suits them. I don't. I can't work out how she feels about that from that quote. <laughs> I'm not sure I knew by the end of the interview. How, where did you go? Did you go to Hollywood? No, that? no, no. She was over for promotion for this book, which is the Sant'Angelo's, which was the final chapter of her series. Um, and so it was at the Marriott Hotel, um, organised by Simon and Schuster. I was told to go and meet her in her suite at a very particular time before the event and I think I wore I wore a black dress elegant and classy because I guess you know I'm trying to think what you can't wore. whatever you wear she'll be in basically in the chandelier she's sort of like the literary Lady Gaga well except she because I think I don't know if it's because I didn't know she was ill at the time I mean she literally died like six days later so I remember her being very thin but I think she wore a jacket and a skirt actually just quite smart not a sort of diamante birdcage. No, but, I mean because she big hair, lots of she big hair. Didn't, am I right in thinking that she, and she didn't really share that information with anyone? No, before she died. And I was always wondering whether it was a partly a generational thing of that being something that you didn't talk about or wouldn't have talked about when she was growing up, or whether it was to do with her as someone who was so so glamorous of wanting to absolutely be in control of sort of the perception of her and not wanting to be publicly I think, vulnerable. I, I wonder whether she was just a trooper. I mean, that was the sense that I, when I, you know, I when the news came out, uh, you know, a week later, that she died and I thought back to that interview. That must have been such a shock. It was a massive shock. I mean, I yeah, huge. My sense was that she was just a kind of, you know, good old fashioned, you keep the show on the road. Mm. You know, and I'm committed to doing these events and I have a book to promote and I will go out there and promote them. I mean, just the kind of consummate professionalism of that, knowing that you are very, very ill. I mean, I don't know how ill she knew she was at that point even. How, have you ever had a sort of a period of, of block? Because I get the impression that, you know, like Jackie Collins, you're constantly working, you're constantly... I am of the school of thought that you something. sit at your desk each day and you do stuff. Um, and even if you write words that are terrible you need to write some words and even if they're going to be deleted you have to kind of, I mean everybody works differently I know but for me for my own kind of a sense of professional self-esteem almost I have to do something every day and the fact is you know if I'm I suppose in, in a way it's a bit of a cheat because if I know that I'm struggling slightly on novel stuff mm. there is always reviews to write or events to prep mm. so I can always do stuff which is work 
if I'm, you know, as a diversion from creative writing, if I'm struggling with that. But I am, I mean, if I'm on a week where I have set this week, the week aside to do novel writing and I'm struggling, which I do often, um, I will sit and I will just write and write and write. And even if I know it's absolutely terrible and it will get deleted, I still write. Because you talked a little bit um, when we were when we were organising this about your your routine. You said, you know, I'm up at seven every day. So is that you go to your desk and you sit there at seven and you... Yes. So my husband and daughter leave at ten past seven, which is brilliant um, because I'm a morning person. So, I mean, seven is late for me. So sort of two or three years ago, I would normally get up at like 3.30 when before my daughter went to school. And so I was doing much more kind of daytime childcare. I would get up about 3.30, right for two or three hours until she got up. And then, you know, right again later when she went to nursery or whatever. Whereas now they're out of the house at seven. So I'm at my desk. So I may, I'm showered and dressed and coffee made and everything. I'm at my desk about seven, ten past seven. And then I work till about 2.30 when I have to go and do school pickup. And then I basically do kind of like parenthood from 2.30 to about 7.30. And then I work again from about 7.30 to about 10.30. Oh, wow. So that's a That's why I have no social life. People keep on saying, so I didn't go out socially once last year that wasn't work related. And when I say that to people, they look at me as if to say, you know, either you're just very tragic or I don't quite believe you. But it's because I work every evening. Um, can we talk about your new book, which I think will probably be out when this goes out yes. or very, very close to it. It is called If Only I Could Tell You, which I did know, but I had to double check. <laughs> it's funny because I've got multiple copies on the shelf. So you had like multiple opportunities to... Uh, to long remind yourself. So I could put the eyes in the wrong place. To be but fair, no, you I, did read it a long time ago. I did so. read it a while ago and I, I really, really loved it. I found it moving and I because I, I just love stories about families and what I loved about it so much is it's a far from sort of idealised family. It's about feeling all oh, that sort of, you know, love and jealousy and attention and pressure and I don't want to do too many spoilers but it really kind of, you know, it's sort of, there were so many moments that made my, made my heart swell and made me go, and do little sort of sad gasps. I mean, the thing, the the thing about the kind of like the family book for me, you know, there are there are lots of critics and writers who say, you know, writing about families, domestic and small minded, and you know, it's it's a you know the, what women write about is family, and men write about big ideas and politics and things. Um, and for me, the family is the place where you learn all your formative relationships and you learn how to behave around other people and negotiate things and emote and or not, as the case may be. And so for me, the family is the kind of cornerstone of the kind of individuals that people are going to be where they end up in society in 20 or 30 years' time. Like, you know, that's mm. where we form our view of relationships. So to me, writing about the family is kind of absolutely at the heart of writing about society and the kind of people, way, the ways that people develop. So, and also, you know, politically, you can sort of say, I'm going to write about grand ideas. Like, 99% of people, even if they're, you know, big, grand, shouty writers, they will have no bearing on those events. Whereas everybody has some kind of a, a family or yes. a family-type relationship yeah. in their life, whether it's, you know, full of love or full of pain, or I think most of us, somewhere in between. Yes. And, I mean, if you look at something like, um, just a quick diversion, if you look at something like Jonathan Coe's Middle England, which is, you know, hailed as the first Brexit novel, and it is brilliant, and it's, you know, the political backdrop is there, and politically it's very astute and insightful. But essentially, it's about families and relationships and marriages falling apart and difficult parents and siblings you know that's what drives that narrative is what drives that narrative is not how we're feeling about the referendum mm. what drives the narrative is kind of people's 
emotional reactions to the referendum and the conflicts that come out of it. But I've just finished um, Aisha Malik's uh, The Screen in Pleasant Land, which is coming out this summer. And again, that's a book, I don't know if you've um, read it yet, you're much more disciplined than I am in reading things in order, whereas I'm just that. <laughs> um, but I thought it was fantastic and really a sort of a, a big book and a small book. And it's big because it's sort of about the clash between, I think, you know, what it's like to be a Muslim living in the UK and about racism and small-mindedness and why people are racist and people failing to understand each other and people sort of struggling to kind of to be compassionate and it's about identity and it's very growing up but, but it really all of that comes about because it's the exploration of a family mm. and different families and that kind of fragmentation yeah. um, and, and otherwise definitely you, recommend it I otherwise think. you would not be drawn into that narrative and those characters um, shall we go? Shall we go downstairs? Next, yeah. yeah. Are we, are we going to work downwards in sequential order? Yeah. Uh, so this is the uh, bookshelf outside Hannah's daughter's room. Uh, so she's very lucky because I was reviewing children's books as well. Um, she has basically more books than most public libraries, so she's got like close on two thousand books. So this is basically this is not this is her kind of secondary bookshelf. So in her room. Oh, these pictures are beautiful. She, again, lovely illustrators have sent her original artwork over the years. Um, so we've got Rob Biddulph and Beth Wolvin and Clara Villiami, who is Shelley Hughes' daughter, and Oliver Jeffers and Benji Davis. So she has all this amazing artwork. So now she's on, she's now six, so she's on kind of, you know, the Enid Blytons ah, and the, so and the, and the Harry, Harry Potters, she's done all the Roald Dolls she's worked through. I love those Nell Stratfield reissues. I haven't read them yet, I've given them Is straight to her. Apple Bough, I, gosh, I get them confused because they are... There's a sort of certain kind of rhythm her stories follow. Or is it Caldecott Claire? No, I think it is Apple Bow that's about a, um, a th- someone in, in the family, a child is discovered to be a prodigy, a musical prodigy, and they sort of say, they go all around the world, you know, following his career, and he's got a manager, and but all the children want is to come back home, and it's about that, really. It's really Aww. simple, but, oh, it's gorgeous. <laughs> oh, Hannah. Do you, do you still read to her? I do, it's really interesting so she became a kind of independent she's quite a kind of precocious reader so she became an independent reader about a year ago um, and what's interesting is that she now reads kind of chapter books for kind of nine to ten year olds but she wants me to read picture books to her the, the kind of books we read when she was sort of three or four to so her at bedtime down here no so these so these so what she likes reading in bed by herself often is you know things like um Blue Planet or David Attenborough's Dynasties or Explanatorium of Nature or she quite likes reading the encyclopedia at bedtime to herself. I'm really taken by that. The Story of Life Evolution. It's got the most beautiful cover. Again, there I go, judging. I have to say, I, I mean... I don't really have a kind of strong sense of sort of, other than the last five years of children's books, but I have a very strong sense of the books that we had when we were kids. And I think non-fiction books for kids now are just so beautiful and so cleverly done and you know my mum was reading Book of Bones to with her the other day and she said I'm sure if I had books like that when I was a kid I would have been more interested in biology and yes. science because they're done so inventively and so you know, be- you know beautiful illustrations and you know this book I'm going to show you this one because it is amazing so Book of Bones 10 record record-breaking animals and what you do, what they the way they've done it is you have 
uh, like a who is this and it has the skeleton and then it has the 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 actual animal and then you can actually feel the skeleton oh. underneath oh that's so, so you have clever. a sense of how a skeleton fits inside a body um and they're just they're just really beautifully done and again you know they're tactile and they're beautifully illustrated I think um, I'm going to buy my own copy so I can bone up. <laughs> Sorry, I cannot resist a terrible pun. I'm going to look at a poem for every day of the year. Yeah, um, so we've got we've basically got sort of two different versions. So that one is a grown-up one ah. that we do read at bedtime. Um, so this is um, a, a Pam Macmillan. Um, I'm going to see. So it's. So the thing that we always do is look up our birthdays first. So look up what's your birthday poem. Oh, I don't know this poem. It's The Bright Field by R.S. Thomas, a proudly Welsh poet. So one of our favourites, which happens to be on my birthday, is this, which is today is very boring. And it's about, um, it's just hilarious. Like for kids, it's just a hilarious poem. It's about someone saying it's really, really boring. And the loads of amazing, like ridiculous things are happening. Um, so that, yeah, that's a great book. And then this one for kids, I just love. So this came out this Christmas, which is, and it's called I Am the Seed That Grew the Tree. And it's a kid's book, but it's a nature poem for every day of the year. And it's beautifully illustrated. Oh. I mean, like, you know, if you're, if you're a kid. Thing. And uh, how would you not get into poetry if you're given mm. a book like that? And... The thing that, you know, I think what's really interesting about children and poetry is that I think when you get to, you know, secondary school and you're started to ask about, you know, understand, you know, interpret the poem and, you know, what's the hidden meaning? Well, poetry becomes sort of difficult mm. in a way that it ne never needs to be. Whereas for kids, the rhythm is almost like, a, like just reading a poem and rhythm and language and rhyme particularly it's almost like a kind of literary mindfulness for them so we do read poems before bed every night and I think there is something genuinely kind of calming about you know you've started when they were tiny with with Julia Donaldson and you know her lovely which is really poetry her books and then you kind of move on to this to you know you know famous poets um and and I think there is something genuinely calming about those rhymes and those rhythms Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We'll be back to Hannah soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. 
a book I loved so much that paying the cover price alone feels like ripping someone off and makes me think we should all send the author some money on PayPal. This week, my steal is Perfect Liars by Rebecca Reed, a chilling, addictive novel about what happens between old school friends when they meet up, having spent years trying to hide a horrible secret. This is a taut, extremely pacey thriller. I don't usually reach for thrillers, but the emotional detail is so sharp and evocative that I loved it. Reed captures the jealousy and anxiety of a toxic friendship brilliantly. And I loved the way she explores the unravelling of failing relationships. That's Perfect Liars, published by Transworld, out now. Now, back to Hannah. Hannah, what room are we in? I so, see a, um, and a very impressive... Is that a keyboard or an organ? No, that's a, that's a digital piano that we have left over from before we got the proper piano downstairs. Um, so, do you play? I do, yes. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't just get a massively big grand piano for a six-year-old. That, that would be slightly extreme. Do you, um, do you play often? Do you play now? I play most days, yeah. I, I, it, it's, um, for me, you know how like, lots of people talk about like, going for a run or going for a swim mm. and it releases endorphins and makes them feel relaxed? For me, partly because I'm lazy and I don't want to go for a swim or a run. Um, Fair enough. Piano is my, is my version of that. It's my version of kind of mindfulness. God, it's such a lovely thing to do with your hands. What, playing the piano? Yeah. Yes. Have you played all your life? I started when I was, I started the flute first when I was about nine, eight or nine, and then started the piano when I was about 10 or 11, and then did a lot of music. You know, I nearly went to music college instead of, instead of university. I, I was kind of very musical. And then my mum very sensibly said, you can do music as a hobby your whole life, but you need to get a proper job. Um, so this is a bit of a motley bookcase, if I'm honest. So we're now in the playroom, which is also the room that we kind of hang out in. We're on the first floor of the house. And this is the room that we kind of tend to hang out in in the evenings. So it's it's a bit of a mishmash room because it's got all my daughter's toys in. It's got lots of her books. So there's an amazing um, range of, um, I see children's books. What are these? The little people, big oh, dreams. They're oh, they're wonderful. These look gorgeous. There's, a, there's, a, there's about so sorry. 40 of them now. Squashing a um, so they are very... Like, oh, let's look at the Agatha Christie one. Okay, do the Agatha one. Christie one. Um, I'm always surprised in all these things when Coco Chanel comes up. It's like, why is Coco Chanel in all of the kind of mm. feminist, um, you know, people you should aspire to be like? There books? was one, I think, of sort of, I don't know who wrote it, but it's a, you know, for teenage girls, like brilliant feminist heroes to read about, and Audrey Hepburn's one. And oh, there's an Audrey here. Oh, is there? Yeah, Audrey's oh, here. Oh, ma- well. maybe this is what someone was talking about. And I think, well. Look, I can see the appeal, but at the same time, I'm sure there are quite a few <laughs> other who are above her in the list. Mm. Um, yeah, so they're just brilliantly graphic books. I think they're all... Ooh. Little Agatha and her mum read a book together every afternoon. Agatha always had a better idea for how the story should end. Mm. Have you, if there are any books, classic books or other books, where you think that's not how I would have done it, where you've got a, an idea for how you'd rewrite the ending? Oh, Golly, no. I mean, you do ask some quite difficult questions, I do. Daisy. I'm really I mean, I, I struggle spot. to remember what I read last week, let alone books. I remember when I was a teenager starting to get frustrated about the kind of happily ever after ending. Um, you know that you know that thing that you, when you're a bit older and a bit more sophisticated and you understand much more explicitly that the story doesn't end when the people kiss for the first time mm. or even get married and I think I did I think when I was a teenager I did start getting a sense of that's not really the end of the story um which is not to say that I would think that I should rewrite you know the end of Pride and Prejudice but that I mean I do think about that a bit with you know the Brontes you know utterly brilliant you know some mm. of the greatest writers who's ever lived but you do think I don't think 
these relationships are going to be happy or untroubled. <laughs> you're, you know, you're off with a fairly terrible man who's got psychological problems. Yes. And in fact, there was, I can't remember where it was, but there was a piece of research only about a week or two ago about how damaging it is for, you know, girls and young women to be reading these happily ever after stories where things end with people getting married or, you know, having mm. the first kiss. Because A, obviously it's very reductive um, in terms of their options, but also it's the beginning of the story. It's not the mm. end. Absolutely. And I think it's so, so interesting that because I'm really interested in relationships, real ones and imaginary ones, but it's rare to get the meat of a relationship in either we're so interested in the beginning and the ending, but the lifetime in between, mm. which is the richest bit, nobody seems to kind of yeah. fully explore or care about. There's um, a, a good friend of mine, a writer I really love, I think he's really, really entertaining and funny, Lucy Vine, who writes mm. fabulous romantic comedies. And I think nearly all of her books sort of end with the heroine being kind of happily single, or, you know, they'll yeah. be romanced and she'll be sort of pursued and pursued, but sort of ends up saying, you know what, actually, I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> this is fine. I'm not going to try and force this into a relationship because you're you know not damaged not so great yeah. yes that's a beautiful edition of something i can't I think quite that might be tennyson it's one of my grandparents tennyson select poems yeah. i love it's leather bound so did you inherit this so that is beatrice beckerman that is my great great aunt oh wow this is got proper gilt at pages and everything oh, look, you open it on the lady of shalott of course you do lady. <laughs> I'm disappointed in myself for being quite so obvious. I did. I studied Tennyson um, at A level, and I loved him so, so, so much. And I was just thinking about getting poems in your head. And with me, it's always um, Mariana. And oh, she said, my life is dreary. He cometh not. She said, no, oh, I am a weary, a weary. I would that I were dead. And it's just the most gloriously teen emo kind of. It's funny, isn't it? That stuff that you learn when you're a child that you can remember, like. 30 years later that I mean if I tried to memorize a long poem now it would take me weeks and weeks and weeks to do it so yeah so here we have you know we have Shakespeare we have Brecht we have bits and bobs of poetry but this is a so this this side is essentially kind of fiction on a non-fiction from the last I've got non-fiction and fiction combined here which pains me but I just haven't had time to sort it out so this is from the last sort of four or five years um that just ha hasn't made it downstairs to the to the A1 bookshelf. <laughs> I see. And so over here, the other side, got um, floor-to-ceiling books on the both ends. So I spotted this um, earlier. There's a shelf, I see, emergency sex and Greek island hopping. <laughs> yeah, both my husbands. I hate to that. <laughs> um, this is basically, I suppose... Our, this is our kind of brainy shelves. So these are all of the books left over from academic days of studying psychoanalytic theory and critical theory and film theory and feminism. And they're books that I probably haven't picked up for the best part of 25 years, but I'm, I'm hoping that at some point in the next decade they will provide some inspiration to my daughter. So this is a, a mix of uh, your books and your husband's books. Did you... Were you ever sort of studying together? Were you studying? No, he's things? seven years younger than me. When I was when and we and we didn't obviously we didn't meet each other until much until we were now. He was in his twenties and I was in my thirties. Um, but we actually grew up very near to each other, and we worked out that when I was kind of going to discos, not far from his house, he was you know doing crosswords and you know playing computer games. Um, so these are most these are mostly mine. You know the the kind of economic textbooks on the other ah. side are all his, but all the 
all the psychoanalytic theory. And... Gosh, it's funny, isn't it? I just wish it didn't even... I think my, my eyes just sort of blanked any time. <laughs> oh, that looks like maths. <laughs> so did you have, do you give each other books? He is not a huge fiction reader. He reads... Basically, we have a competition each year. So he reads loads and loads and loads of political articles online. Um, and at the end, so he, he saves them all to that app called Pocket. Do you need to use ah. that? Which is brilliant. I love Pocket. Um, so every time someone sends me an article, I just save it straight to Pocket and then I know that I've got it for later. So Pocket tells him at the end of the year how many words he's read. And obviously I keep a list of all the books I've read and I kind of average it out mm. at like 100,000 words of books. So we have a competition at the end of each year to see who... God, this makes us sound so <laughs> tragic. No, no, I bet um, you do. Um, you always win. No, we're usually oh, on a par. Oh, really? I mean, I, I usually I usually pip him to the post just very slightly, but we're normally kind of sort of around sort of one and a half million words each year. I do I do um, give him books, but I have to be very selective because he's quite. We don't our, our the Venn diagram of where we overlap is mm. quite small. Um, so he, for instance, will read stuff like Ian M. Banks, which I would just never read in a million years. Um, so I love Ian Banks, but just wouldn't really want to do Ian M. Banks. Um, so we cross over on things like, you know, I've just given him his first Maggie O'Farrell, which oh. he loved. So obviously she is one That's of my good... favourite writers of all time and one of my favourite humans. Um, and uh, we which, crossed... Which one was it that you... I gave him yeah. This Must Be The Place. Ah. So... The, the most recent and, you know, stylistically brilliant. Um, so we cross over on stuff like, uh, you know, the McEwans and the William Boyds and um, those kind of uh, sort of elder statesmen. God, would they hate me for saying elder statesmen? They're all in their 50s or 60s, aren't they? Yeah, I, th- I think they'd, they'd probably be cross if you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> we cross over on those quite a lot. Um, in fact, I've just given him Tessa Hadley late in the day, Ooh. which I have just finished. And, oh, my goodness, it's sublime. It's so brilliant. I've actually, I've never read any Tessa Hadley. It was my first. It was my first. And I had so many people on, again, on Twitter had Mm. said it's amazing. And in fact, that was a book for pleasure when I was ill last week. um, And I could read stuff for pleasure. Um, That's the first book that I've read for ages that was just out of choice. And then obviously we have the the kind of the wish fulfillment travel bookshelf, which is mostly places we have been to. But it is kind of there to remind us that we are now in kind of suburban parenthood no longer kind of globe trotting i can't believe you haven't mentioned my complete collection of freud they're even worth you know they've even got their spines cracked and they're not even there just for a <laughs> show because freud would have a lot to say about you wanting us to notice the freud um but i didn't mention that so <laughs> so you did english i did and then did you go on to do psychology or no no, no. so as my uh, in when i was doing I, I basically didn't like anything pre-20th century literature when I was doing English, which was, was a bit of a problem. But from the second and third year, you could basically... I was at King's in London, and you could basically um, choose your modules to make sure you didn't do anything other than 20th century. And they there was there were a couple of lecturers there that were just big on psychoanalytic theory and critical theory um, and feminist theory. So basically, I just did a lot of that. So everything was through a psychoanalytic feminist prism that I read and wrote about. Um, and then when I did my MA, I did basically like sort of 20th century literature MA. Um, and so carried on doing a lot of psychoanalytic theory. Um, and I know Freud is very unfashionable in lots of ways, but he is... He is the father of psychoanalysis and I will always genuflect before the altar of my Freud shelf. 
Um, oh, these! Oh, yeah. So this is. I mean, as I say, I, there is a there is a there is a structure to this. So this is the shelf above the airing cupboard, and it, I just suddenly realised one day this is a shelf that is not used. So this, this is, is very a, much like you know. I'm writing with my feet in the kitchen sink. I'm reading by reaching above the airing cupboard. So this is just a continuation of the alphabetizing that started in the playroom and will continue in the study upstairs. So we've got Laurie Moore here, and then I think Claire McIntosh starts upstairs. Reverse. Which isn't actually alphabetical at all, is it? Because that's M-O and M-A. It's interesting looking at the spine of um, This Is Going To Hurt by Adam Coe, which is sort of a mega, mega hit book. And, you know, I think of that as being a very new book, but that looks, the way it's sort of displayed being kind of the paperback, and I think that, so that that's primrose proof. yellow. Ah, that, is that, proof. that looks like it could be from sort of, it could be 20 years old, just from seeing well, the spine. Well, that's probably because it's been around so many people's houses. So is that one that you've been kind of pressing into people's hands? Yeah, and saying, so, so I, think, I, I don't think there's anyone in my extended family who hasn't had that copy, because I got it you know, a long time before publication, loved it on site, um, became kind of a huge champion for him and that book, and yeah, pressed it into so many people's hands, which is why it does look like it's 20 years. But you're right, the colours on it do look like kind of an, almost like a kind of old penguin. Or something, yeah, don't they? really. I'm thinking about seeing, you know, spines on, you know, my parents' bookshelves. Yeah, and things from sort of, the, you know, the, I guess the late eighties that have been read. It's got that real, just like a, a contemporary classic. Yes, guess. and it is next to the. Um, Hardback. I'm not going to touch any more because it's all going to fall down. The beautiful hardback that looks very which, shiny and Which new. I think hasn't been touched because it's one of those, you know, when you, after you've had, a, I very rarely create proofs and hardbacks um, because there's just not room. But when you really love a book, then I, I do. Well, in the sitting room, it's a beautiful grand piano. Um, it really is a gorgeous piano. Uh, what no one told me before we got it is that gloss black is really terrible for dust. Uh, I mean, it looks very, very shiny. Yeah, that's because my daughter reminded me to dust it yesterday, and she, because she's the right height. She was like, no, you missed a bit, missed a bit, you missed a bit. <laughs> I was like, I've got to dust it. Useful and quite coming. irritating. Oh, oh, you shouldn't have done it on my account, but it is... It was filthy. <laughs> Actually lovely. So let's have a look at books. I'm going to try and go around this stool. Um, yes, yeah, so I can see um, a wide range of Maggie O'Farrell's. Always lots of Maggie. I see Ellie Smith, I see Zadie Smith. Um, yes, you weren't kidding about it, it's definitely oh, the this Smiths is... are together. So a, I, you've got an A to Z of Smiths. I think I alphabetised this when I was overdue for childbirth um, and we just had these shelves built and... Um, Everyone kept on saying, you've got to keep busy, you've got to keep busy, and then the baby will come. So I painted all these shelves and then alphabetized all the books, and it was one of those kind of just desperate time-filling activities. Um, but I was really, really fascistic about making sure they were properly alphabetized. So if you find something that's wrong, I will be heartbroken. Oh, God, I'm definitely... I'm not now going to tell you. You are, are aren't you? You're, you're going to now make it your mission to try and find something that's out of sync. A writer I really, really love, and it's that sort of mentionitis thing, isn't it? If you don't notice something, and then it's all you see. Doris Lessing has been mentioned, and I was surprised that she'd not come up before, but I see you've got masses of Doris Lessing. I have got masses. So I read The Golden Notebook when I was probably 16, and it was, without a doubt, my kind of awakening moment into feminism, undoubtedly. I do think that is a book... Actually, that's a, someone's asked me to recommend some... Um, I think it's 16 books for their 16-year-old daughter, and 
um, the ones I thought of were Brother of the Morphemes Jack and Dead Avocado, but I think The Golden Notebook, or maybe Martha Quest would be uh, there. I gave The Golden Notebook to one of my nieces when she turned 16. I gave her like five books for her 16th birthday oh, that I thought were kind of... I will have to think of them. I can't remember what the other... I think I, I, think I might have given her a Maggie. Um, I, think, I gave her a Sarah Waters... Because she, I think I probably, if I, I probably gave her Tipping the Velvet. But no, I mean, Doris Lessing, it should, I just think it should be required reading for every kind of teenage and early 20-something girl stroke woman. Um, I mean, it's, you know, stylistically, it's a, it's, it's a really interesting, challenging book. But just having that sense of kind of women being in both troubles, mm. but ultimately kind of empowered, for me, was just kind of mind-blowing. I mean, I really, 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 really love um, Anita Bruckner. And I know that not everybody does. And I do feel as though Anita Bruckner is sometimes dismissed because the covers aren't great. And there's a, they're, they're books about anxious, shy women sort of being disappointed. But I think there's a lot more wit and spark there. But I think that Martha is almost like the anti-Bruckner heroine, mm. isn't she? Mm. Because she's all gumption and guts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in fact, well, I, I mean, you need both. Up you know, there are all, library. I haven't read them, but they're all her science fiction books as well that I picked up in secondhand shops over the years. And I haven't actually read any of those ones. But um, again, at some point in retirement, I will get round to them. Um, I have lots of Roth. There's an there's a, almost a full, a half a shelf of Roth. Um, and I know lots of people, lots of women have an issue with Roth, but I adore him. When did you come to him? I, for my, for my, my master's dissertation was about the representation of the Jewish mother in 20th century literature. And so obviously, like one of the centerpieces was Portnoy's complaint. So I came to him then. So relatively late, 21, I guess, um, loved Portnoy's complaint, then started reading his more recent stuff. You know, I genuinely think um, that American Pastoral is one of the great novels of the 20th century. And then when I was working TV, I wrote him to ask him to make a documentary for his 70th birthday. And one day my phone rang and this voice said, is that Hannah Beckerman? And I said, yeah, and he said, it's Philip Roth. And we just started these kind of year-long, kind of once-a-week, hour-long phone calls about his books and his life. And eventually wow. he said, come and make the film. And so we went and spent, you know, three days making a film with him. A very, very deep voice, I'm imagining. Hello. No, not a particularly deep voice. And I basically was completely in love with him. Like utterly, like it didn't matter that I was in a mid twenties and he was sixty nine. If he had said move here and you know move in with me and be my mistress, I would have just said yeah, fine, I'm, I'm there. Um, and when he died last year, and we did keep up a bit of a correspondence, so I have got some letters for him from him. And when he died last year, I wrote a piece for the Observer about it. And my commissioning editor phoned me up and said, I've just read your piece. Have you read Lisa Halliday's Asymmetry? And I said, no, I haven't even heard of it. And he said, well, it's basically your story, but where they do end up having the thing. And I was so jealous. With Philip Roth? Yeah. So is it a memoir? A young, uh, it's, a, it's a novel, but it's a, it's a, it's a loosely fictionalised autobiography. Wow. So do you sort of wish that you'd perhaps well, I'm, I'm, made I'm, a move? Well, I sort of wonder, I, I just You're feel, feel slightly disappointed because obviously I, we had this kind of year-long conversation, mm. the, the, like conversations on the phone, and then obviously he was a bit disappointed when I got there. I'm sure that's not the case at all, but how interesting that sliding doors moment of yes. where... And you want to believe, don't you, that obviously if that had happened, then 
maybe all the good things that are going on now perhaps wouldn't have. Yeah, I don't. When I look back now as a 43-year-old woman, I don't really wish that I'd had an affair with Philip Roth when I was in my mid-20s. And I imagine it was that the possibility was the most thrilling part. No, I think it's it's almost that proximity thing, that Mm. proximity to greatness thing. It's a bit, I mean, it's a bit like, you know, what we were saying about the kind of Freud books or the critical theory and all of that stuff that I haven't read for years. Um, and you were talking about the possibility of it. Yes. And, and I think there is also part of me that kind of thinks just by osmosis, by having all these books around me, it somehow just naturally is enriching. And I think there was something about the Philip Roth thing that I think I just wanted to be touched, not necessarily physically, but touched by greatness. <laughs> <laughs> physically touched by greatness. That's a good book title. Um, now, oh. It's how exciting that David Nichols has got a new one out. Oh, I know. Like beyond excited. I just think David Nichols is one of the funniest writers working. I was going to say in the English language, I don't know anyone who's very, very funny in like <laughs> French or Welsh. Or, but the things I always think of that are, as a line that's something like, Suki would probably start a letter of condolence with, hey, and... The only time um, Ian, the aspiring stand-up comic, and the only time Ian had ever made... Emma laugh was when he'd fallen down the stairs. Yeah. I mean, he's such a humane writer as well. Mm. I mean, did you see his? Did you see Patrick Melrose? Um, I've not seen it. I've only. This is so brilliant. You. I mean, it's must. It's. It is genuinely the best thing I have seen on TV in years. And his scripts are just sublime. I mean, you know, I love those Patrick Melrose books, and I was really, really nervous, even when I knew David was doing it, mm. because adaptations can often be so, like, so disappointing. Um, and it is just, it's just a wonderful, brilliant piece of TV. I wonder whether, because I think I've read the first three and I thought they were fantastic. And this is a controversial thing to say, and I think I've said it before. I'm going to get into trouble one day. And there was so much to love about them, but definitely with the third one, I got, I dare, I'm going to come back to these books and I will love them and I will learn and I'll figure it out. But I get... I'm a very, 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 very slow reader of Anthony Pohl. I've only just learned, and it is pronounced Pohl, not Powell. Which was um, that Nina Stibby who told you yes, that? Yes, I was, think it was. I remember in the podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the, the name-dropping, like, oh, look, Buttons has come in, and he's selling a communist newspaper, and he's with that woman who someone had an affair with in the last book, and it's, it's like going to a really, that sort of dreary, dreary name-dropping. And I think, what's the third um, Patrick Melrose I'm going to have a look. It's Some hope. I mean, I think what I love about the, the Patrick Melrose books is that they, like, emotionally, I found them so raw and brutal and hard-going in a way that that I sort of felt like I needed to go through because he had, mm. you know. So, so I, I mean, I, yeah, I love them. But the the TV series is dark. I'm not gonna. I recommended it to, to a friend who's off sick at the moment, and she texted me saying, "You didn't tell me it was gonna be quite that dark." So, so now we're on what we're, we're on we, my shelf, which is A. We're A to K. A to K. So we start with. Ali, um, Chinua Chabi, Gilbert Adair, and we yeah. end with oh god, sorry, Ivan Klima. I can see lots of um, so top feminist literature. Oh, you've got you've got family and friends, Anita Bruckner. Um, I see oh, I, I see Kate Chopin, um, Marilyn French. Are these from um, these are you, all these are all books that I that university. I read in my kind of university phase. Yeah, I mean, I would say from kind of sixteen to twenty four. I immersed myself in kind of feminist writing and feminist fiction. Um, and then I just became sort of, you know, more of a generalist after that. 
so but, I mean you know we at the same time like you know there's loads of Raymond Chandler there and Raymond Carver you know all of this this is all, all the stuff Raymonds. That, all the Raymonds, Raymonds. <laughs> Organised according to Raymond. I mean, we were talking earlier about how we don't really like crime or read mm. crime much. Um, you know, Raymond Chandler is an exception to that. Mm. I mean, he is an exceptional writer. Um, and there is a darkness and a depth to characters there that is just brilliant. Absolutely. And I think as well, an aspect of the poetic, it's as much mm. like reading poetry as anything else because yeah. he's such an economist. Well, um, talking earlier about forever and you all being in it together and passing it around... I read American Psycho when I was about 13 and it was on my parents' spare shelf and I couldn't tell anyone I was reading it because I wasn't supposed to. And holy Mary, was I as scared. And it was too much. did you need to talk to someone about it? Yes. I really did. <laughs> oh, ah, gorgeous Bloody Chamber by Angela Cushion. Wow. Signed first edition that my siblings bought for me for my 21st birthday. What an incredible gift. It cost £85. <laughs> It was um. It would probably be slightly more than that now because twenty twenty first birthday was quite a long time ago. Or was it not well, signed? Is it yes, year it is. ago? Surely. And oh, what's so lovely as well about Angela Carter's signature is probably quite easy to fake. I mean, sure, obviously this is this is authenticated, but um, under her name, it's just um, Angela Carter written in a bio that's running out. A bio that's running out. <laughs> very kind of neatly and sort of very 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 legibly it's, with it's quite wavy lines under, yes yeah and the wavy sea line yes underneath um and she's not done that thing of crossing out her own name writing underneath do you do what that is, what is that thing i didn't it was only it's only in the last year or so that i've clocked that that's what authors do is that what you're supposed to do as an oh. author i had a conversation with nina about this a while ago and she rolled her eyes and said it's like men do it <laughs> and I don't know if there's some I can I am writing my name better than the publisher can because I have no idea it's a weird but what I mean like, why convention. do you need to cross out one name mm. in order to write your other I was studying Angela Carter at university we were doing books to film so we were doing the bloody chamber um and uh, I mean she is in terms of kind of like feet of imagination she is just wonderful isn't she it's just I must say it's like the most stunning cover too um it is, isn't it? You've got a um, got the nails on the wolf. I nails mean, that is terrifying. Wolf. And a beautiful topless lady with kind of mermaid snaky hair, and she got a like a unicorn horn. Yeah, I'm see. not sure that's supposed to be. A I don't know if she's supposed to be, or it's a bit of her. Maybe it's. A, oh no, it's the wolf's jaw, isn't it? Where? I think that line there. So what I thought oh, yeah, was the oh, yes. head. It's. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I need your the bone book. That would help me. <laughs> yes. Huge, huge thanks to the fabulous Hannah. Read If Only I Could Tell You Immediately. It's out now, published by Orion, but do be warned that it will make you cry. If you're reading it on a train, try to make sure you've got plenty of tissues on you and you're not sharing a carriage with a school trip. Follow Hannah at Hannah Beckerman on Twitter, at Hannah Beckerman Author on Instagram and share the love with her. I'm Daisy Buchanan. Thank you so much for joining me, fellow Tome Raiders. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at TheDaisyBee. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked for more information about our guests and a list of the books they talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people find the podcast. I'll see you next time. And meanwhile, don't forget what John Waters said. If you go home with somebody and they don't have books, don't fuck them.
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.